And, and I think this idea that you shouldn't tell students that this is your first time teaching a class, right? Because the fear is that they might take advantage of you, which I just think is so silly. It's like, mm-hmm. even if they do take advantage of you, what's the worst that's going to happen, right? They, they get a grade that you might not personally think that they deserve, right? But if, if you create an environment where they know that you trust them, you know, sure, you might get taken advantage of, right? But if the worst that's going to happen is like they get some grade you don't think they deserve, what's the best thing that can happen? Best thing that can come out of that type of classroom environment or dynamic, right? That they genuinely learn something and that they genuinely, you know, leave your class like feeling like they gained something from it. Yeah, see, that's the soundbite. That's what we're putting at the start of this episode. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Jacob Miranda. And I'm Cassie Witt. Now, Cassie and I are doctoral students here at the University of Alabama, specifically in the Experimental Psychology program, where we're concentrating in social psychology. Together, we are the hosts of Corrupting the Youth, a podcast about the teaching of psychology. If you love psychology, education, or both, this is the podcast for you. All right, Cassie, we just finished recording our inaugural episode. How do you feel? I feel excited, Jacob. <laughs> Why'd you say it like that? I wasn't expecting you to ask me that question. <laughs> this is a fever dream. Yeah. This is your, you know, paralysis dream when you're yeah. like, wake up in the middle of the night and you can't move and we're there whispering in your ear <laughs> asking, how do you that. think the inaugural is? <laughs> And all you hear is an excess. <laughs> I said excited. Okay, then for our first episode, right? It'd be appropriate to talk about first time teachings and maybe introduce kind of like our first time teachings and maybe some memorable components of that. Yeah. But they're like real concerns if you never taught psychology. And for us, we were lucky you and I had a teaching of psychology like class dedicated to that. But and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is like a lot of programs, especially for your first time teaching, like some people don't teach for the first time until they're hired as a faculty and they have like zero experience as a grad student and like zero formal training. Yeah, right? I know, yeah, I know that's how our advisor's experience was. Like she got hired here at Alabama and she'd never taught a class before. And then suddenly her first semester as a faculty member had sections of like 200 students in them um and I know like she has shared that that was quite overwhelming I did not know that I have to follow up with her about that she was just thrown into the deep end yeah definitely but I think that it's a pretty common experience if you go into a faculty position after graduate school like a lot of people just don't have training on teaching during their graduate student years Um, So like this year, I am serving as a graduate teaching fellow here at Alabama. And it's like a big issue, I think, that that we have discussed in like our like fellows meetings. And so something that we have done this year is to try and develop some professional development opportunities for graduate students to get some advice on teaching, talked about 
things like how to, you know, organize your classroom and how to create a syllabus. Like I did one on like interactive in-class activities and like flipped classrooms and things like that. But generally, yeah, I think that many programs in a variety of disciplines, not just psychology, you don't have that kind of training, right? So, and sometimes like graduate students are told to teach classes without that training, right? You're just handed a syllabus and you're like, you're going to teach this 300 person class this semester, which is just, just terrifying. And so then when students are like, my instructor was interactive enough or they didn't connect with me which I've heard, like sometimes I've heard that in smaller classrooms, but like that's so much easier to understand where it's like even a trained professional, it would be hard to connect with students or if it's a 300 person classroom. So like I'm definitely sympathetic to that. Why do you think that training isn't really, I guess, mandated or like even typically used in academia? Definitely not within it's like psychological field or like in our instruction. Like I feel like the logic is if you get your PhD in something, then you know your content well. So if you know your content well, then I guess the assumption is by default, you must be good at teaching that content. And I'm not sure that necessarily follows. And maybe we've all heard this of like brilliant people, brilliant people who know extremely well and concisely what they know and are subject matter experts. But you put them in front of a projector or a PowerPoint and I'm not sure anything is like effectively communicated. Like, do you think that's a default assumption or is it something more cynical? Why, why don't we train more people? Like, why is the default? Once you get your PhD, all right, go, go lead your class. I mean, obviously, I don't know the real calls, but if I had to speculate, I think part of it probably is what you were alluding to. It's just assumed that if you have a doctorate in something or a graduate degree that you know what you're talking about. And you should just be able to to teach people. I think a big part of the issue why we don't get very much training is because teaching isn't incentivized the same way that research is, right? And obviously, like as PhD students, we should be getting our our research training. But if you go on to a faculty position, right, inevitably you're also going to be teaching. Like that's a huge part of the job that you will be doing. I think that a lot of it is just teaching isn't valued in the same way that research is in academia, even though, you know, education is often the reason people want to come to university. Definitely. And I think that was even a concern because you were most recently on the job market. I mean, for anyone who's listening, I just want to congratulate Cassie one more time for getting a tenured teaching position. Yeah. Uh, in her home state. So that's very exciting. You were telling me a little bit about like, as you were interviewing at different places, when there was a specifically like a teaching dedicated position, it was, I, there was almost like a stigma or like a lower ranking of teaching compared to your typical research faculty. Is that right? Or like, I don't want to misquote. What was your experience? Well, I think that was my concern, oh. right? Like, So the position that I ended up getting was a tenure track pedagogical assistant professor position, which was really appealing to me, obviously, as someone who loves teaching and think I'm good at it. But I was really concerned that in that kind of position where I was a teaching professor, that one, that I wouldn't have the opportunities to do research, but also that people wouldn't look at me the same as they would 
an assistant professor, you know, like it would almost be viewed as lesser than. And the institution that I'm going to be at, it doesn't seem that way at all. Like that's not the vibe. Like they very much care about teaching and giving people the resources to become good teachers, right? They really care about their students. But yeah, I mean, I was concerned that it wouldn't be viewed as seriously or the same as someone who had research requirements for tenure and promotion. And I I mean, that's obviously something I've internalized, but it, it was something that I worried about. And I don't think it's an unjustified worry. I feel like that's pretty justifiable having that concern. With that in mind of like, hey, we don't necessarily train teachers. There tends to be a belief sometimes, I'm not saying for many people or even most people, but this idea that teachers are you have it or you don't. You have that spark. You have that charisma, if you want to call it. And I'm almost going to be borrowing from like my IO background. But this idea of leaders, I think where is the idea like are leaders born or are they made? Or is it that you're just like a natural born like George Washington? Or are there certain skill sets that through training can be developed? And I still think that's pretty prevalent today, where nowadays for leadership, yes, there are skills that you can train. Can you train charisma? There's debates on it. But the idea to be an effective leader and to be respected and to get outcomes across, all those skills can be trained. And I think the same is true for teachers. Maybe you don't see yourself as the most extroverted person or the stereotypical teacher type person of what you think a teacher should be. But I do think there's some universal skill sets that all of us, you, I, anyone who's listening, can train and can develop. And those are the type of skills that I don't think are usually focused on in most PhD programs. I don't think it's an innate ability, but I think it could be a developed skill. So, Yeah, I do think that some people naturally have an easier time with it than others, right? You, for example, I think have a whole lot of charisma in the classroom that helps, you know, your students, I don't know, enjoy your classes. I've observed you. You're very good at building rapport with your students. Um, I'll then know you later. (laughs) (laughs) That'll be 50. (laughs) Uh, Seriously, though, I, I think you're correct in saying that it's a skill that can be developed, right? So naturally, I am not a very extroverted person. But I've gotten to the point through experience and practice at being someone I'm hoping is like good at delivering information in front of 200 people, like large lecture classes. So I do think a lot of it is just about getting the opportunity to be in a classroom in that kind of teacher role, even if you're just like a teaching assistant or something, I think that those are incredibly valuable experiences. And in research, it's incredibly valued to be able to communicate the research that you do. And so I think this is also becoming a good teacher is a skill that could help you in that area as well. Learning how to break things down into simple terms or like identifying the things that are most important or relevant about the work that you've been doing or, or reading about. Right. So I do think that like being a good teacher in many ways can also help you in your role as a researcher as well. It's not like teacher specific roles or you're only building this and it only has that one benefit. I feel like the point of like, it's like, these are like life skills on most of like boys develop. Speaking of which, like, what do you think some of these skills are? A first one I would imagine, or maybe when I had to develop, and maybe it's even just like a cognitive thinking style of like trying to break the pattern. 
But this idea of internalization, if a lecture goes poorly, if students are giving you dead fish eyes, if you have this cool activity or maybe like a Kahoot quiz party game and it flops, at least when I first started out, I think that used to be really discouraging to me to try to want to try things because I thought these are all failures. I'm the reason it didn't work. Obviously, the games are fun. It must be me. And I felt like a skill set of taking a step away from the failure and saying like, hey, some are flops, some are not. It's not necessarily the student's fault or your fault. To me, I think that was one skill that through practice, through experience, and just like that constant reminder and having mentors remind me of that took time to grow, but I think it did grow. Do you have any like skill sets for you where like initially you thought you were weaker at? But over time, you're okay, I can do this. This is, is manageable. Yeah. Well, what you were talking about made me think about how self-conscious I was when I first started teaching. Right. So the first time I taught a class, I was 24. And I had students who were 22, 23 in my intro to psychology class. So there wasn't really an age difference there. And I felt almost I was back in high school where I was just like so worried about like what these people thought about me. And it was just like debilitating. Like I was like, I don't want to, you know, risk any jokes that might not land well or try an activity that they think is really lame. You know, I wanted to be liked and cool. And I was just so self-conscious about the things that I did. And like you said, I think it's just something that comes with getting that valuable experience where you kind of shift your mindset to where you're like, you know, like I don't have to be so self-conscious about every single thing that I do in the classroom. So if you are someone who is really new to teaching, like you've never taught a class or like you have maybe taught one or two, recognizing that they don't really care that much. I don't think that it's not like they're going to be like in the group me being like, oh, like her statistics joke was so lame. And it was <laughs> pretty <they> lame. <laughs> Once you start yeah. talking about paranormal distribution. Yeah, that's, that's the one I was about to bring up. <laughs> right. Or it's like the one in like intro to psych when you're talking about classical conditioning and you're like, does any of this ring a bell? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I know, I know. I think the thing though, and I don't necessarily, I don't think I would call this a skill, but it's like coming to the point of recognizing that like students just like care when you're having a good time, right? So it's like, even if your jokes are really lame, if they perceive you being passionate about what you're doing, then that's really important. And I think improves your class overall, right? There's a reason I think that often in evaluations of instructors, students will comment. They're really passionate about what they are teaching, right? Students care about that. So maybe a skill is just conveying the passion that you have for the field of study that you are in, being able to come across as someone who cares about the things that are happening in psychology. And you're right. I'm not sure I would necessarily call it a skill, but like to kind of take what you're saying, as any good academic does, is I'm going to take you, I'm going to cite you, and then I'm going to say like how I said most of it. Exactly. You know? Academia in a nutshell. It's this idea of, for me, authenticity and authentic leadership. And I guess in this case, authentic teaching, if I know it is kind of a prevalent attitude. But this idea that students are the enemy, don't show weakness, 
and I and I've heard this type of talk. It's almost like war talk. Don't ever show any weakness because if you show any type of weakness, they're going to exploit that, take advantage of you, and they're going to like use and abuse you. And I think like having that mentality, I don't see how that mindset of students are the enemy who only take advantage of you if able. Again, I don't know the background of people. I don't know what they've gone through or like maybe they trusted the student and that like really betrayed their trust. I can see that being a thing. For me, this idea of authentic teaching, of exposing who you are, but also exposing your passions, what you care about, letting them know like storytelling in the classroom is like one of my favorite tools, right? When you make it personal, when you make it close to home, when I talk about Alzheimer's, I get to talk about my tia pura. That's what invests people to be like, why do I care about memory research? Why do I care about disease? Why do I care about abnormal psych? These are all topics that we love and care about. And I feel if anything, there's a skill that exists amongst many instructors in psychology that I wish would go away or that I wish we could unlearn. How I like to conceptualize it, a reverse Rumpelstiltskin effect. So like for those of you who know the fairy tale and Cassie, I'm sure you maybe heard me say this before, Rumpelstiltskin gave the power... I think it was like a peasant girl to weave hay into gold. And I think so many academics who are instructors have the reverse effect. They have this beautiful knowledge, this beautiful content area, this beautiful passion even within themselves. And somehow or some way, they weave it into a stack of hay that nobody wants to touch. We really need to avoid that because like what we're working with as far as raw materials go is beautiful and is precious. And you should be wanting to share them with them and be like, there's so much we don't know. But here's what I really care about. Here's what you should really care about. I think when you get into the mentality of I let people, and maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like instructors are so scared of uncertainty and expressing uncertainty in the way the teacher that they don't know and not expressing any intellectual humility, that they see that any displays of that in front of students might be considered a weakness. So in order to be seen as some sort of epistemological authority figure, they're let me read from my PowerPoints. I got my script. Here are my words, very monotone, right? Because in that case, no one can ever doubt your knowledge if you're saying the words versus having like an authentic conversation with someone. Yeah, I don't know the origins of Alzheimer's. I know it personally impacted me. And it's kind of scary that we don't know how to fix it, but it's still important, isn't it? Like, I feel like that's a very tangible difference to like show that weakness and be okay with that. But I can also understand how scary that is for some people. I think there's a, a need to be like, I'm Mr. Miranda. I'm Dr. Miranda. I am not Jacob. You do not call me Jacob. I'm not saying I'm like that, but I know instructors who are like, do not call me by my first name. Boundaries stay away from me. You're you. I'm me. I read from lectures. You sit at your seat and then you go. And I don't think that's fun for the students. And I don't think it's fun for you as a teacher, in my personal opinion. Like, so I've been around, like, what, what do you think, Cassie? Like, this idea of like being okay with being honest to yourself and to your students. Yeah. I mean, I think you know already that I feel similarly. I tell my students on the very first day of class, right, syllabus day, I have no interest whatsoever in creating a power differential between you and me. I want us all to be here because we have the shared goal of learning something. And I also tell my students day one in class, I trust you. Day one, we haven't really had a conversation with one another yet, but I trust you and I want you to trust me that I'm going to be able to teach you things and that the things that I tell you in class about how class is going to be structured, that's actually how it's going to happen. Does it ever surprise your students when you say that you trust them? 
for me in this case, they always seem like shock. It's almost they're expecting to be like, you should doubt me when you just ever like, or you give them that much freedom. I think that autonomy scares the students. I think mm. they're a little freaked out when you tell them that you trust them. And I also think that they, for the most part, seem like really shocked when you extend real concern and empathy towards them. I think that there is just like this pervasive idea in academia that like in order to be a good instructor and like have your course be a good course, you have to be really tough and you have to be really hard on your students and your class has to be incredibly challenging. And I want to challenge my students. Of course, I want to do that. But I think that there is an appropriate way to do that. And I don't think that having trust and compassion in the classroom is like mutually exclusive with like creating an environment where they are motivated to learn, which I think that a lot of instructors believe, right? In fact, like I'm of the mindset that like creating a classroom environment where there's trust like on their end and on my end, that that's how we end up with people who really want to learn and, you know, leave your class and actually remember the things that you tried, tried to teach them. I like that, this idea of like intrinsic motivation, this love of learning, going above and beyond this classroom, even when you're gone. I like that. piece. And I'm curious, the first time you taught, or even the second or even third time that you taught a class, did you let your students know? Did you say, hi, I'm Cassie, I'm 24 years old, and oh my God, you're a year younger than me, and this is my first time. Did you let those people know, or did you let the class know, like, because I feel like some people will be like, I ain't telling them shit, and some people will be like, I want to get that out in the open so they lower their expectations. Yeah, no, I have definitely listened to like teaching panels and Q&As and things like that, where the advice to first-time instructors has been, don't tell them, like, don't let them know that you've never done this before, right? Or else they're not going to respect you as an authority figure in the classroom. But I always tell my students, every single time I like teach a class for the first time, I'm like, I've never done this before. So like, I'm going to have some grace towards you and I hope you extend it towards me as well. And I think that they appreciate that. Um, But I also really care about students becoming good critical thinkers. And I think Part of being a good critical thinker is being able to properly evaluate the source of knowledge. So it's like, if I've never taught a class before, I want them to know that, right? That's an important piece of information for whether or not, you know, they should trust the things that are coming out of my mouth, right? So like, I want them to be able to have all of the information that they need, you know, to to critically think about what's being presented to them in class. Yeah, especially, and I thankfully, I think UA, shout out to University of Alabama, especially our department, and one of our directors, Ansley, she's really good at like pairing you with classes that you want to teach rather than like forcibly assigning you a random class. Because if I was to be randomly assigned to like teach abnormal psych, I've never even taken an undergrad course in that. And for me to like be even expected to do that, but I do know that's how it works in some institutions. It's we need a class filled. 
you're a TA, you're getting this class. So now you're teaching it. Right. And I think you and I even talked about like, if you were assigned personality mm-hmm. with like all your skepticism, like we're not personality <laughs> researchers. <laughs> a fun fact for the listeners, we were originally going to call this podcast higher ed. Um, unfortunately, we do live in the state of Alabama, so that's a no fly zone for us. But if it was yeah. higher ed, that could be in its talk. That could be an episode. Do we have a sense of self? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> but, uh, definitely. If a door opens, does it close? <laughs> Was the door even there at all? And I definitely feel that way because I'm teaching. So I'm very, very lucky. I got to teach a new class for the first time ever using a junior seminar course um, here at UA. And essentially, I get to use my master's to work and I get to actually teach IO, which there seems to be a high demand from our undergrads. Quite literally, what two weeks ago was syllabus day. And I was straight up, I'm like, listen, I have my master's degree in it. It's been about, you know, two years. This is my first time teaching it. And it's not like there's an established course or past PowerPoints or past work that other faculty have done. Like all of this has been creating for you in the moment type of deal. But even as I admit it, I don't want to end it on like, I don't want to be perceived as like such a negative note because I want to also get them excited. Like, I don't think you should ever end on a negative note. Like, Hey, this may be my first time, but let's talk about leadership. Let's talk about organizational culture. Let's talk about diverse initiatives. Right. And like connecting those real world applications, even to stuff that you may not know, it's, it goes back to the, accept that there are certain weaknesses, be transparent about that, but also be transparent about your strengths and your passions as well. Like, I think that's also a good thing that balances out. Yeah. And and I think this idea that you shouldn't tell students that this is your first time teaching a class, right? Because the fear is that they might take advantage of you, which I just think is so silly. It's like, mm-hmm. even if they do take advantage of you, what's the worst that's going to happen, right? They, they get a grade that you might not personally think that they deserve, right? But if, if you create an environment where they know that you trust them, you know, sure, you might get taken advantage of, right? But if the worst that's going to happen is like they get some grade you don't think they deserve, what's the best thing that can happen? Best thing that can come out of that type of classroom environment or dynamic, right? That they genuinely learn something and that they genuinely, you know, leave your class like feeling like they gained something from it. Yeah, see, that's the sound bite. That's what we're putting at the start of this episode. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Okay, Cassie. So you and I, we're ramblers. Um, when I say you and I, mostly me, and you're just a polite person who lets me ramble. So thank you for that. I appreciate you. <laughs> That'll be $50. <laughs> this is called extortion, y'all. We see it from um, I think, though, that if we're going to be talking about first-time teaching, there might be some people who are like, all right, cool, you're talking, you're talking, you're talking. Give me something concrete. What do you do, something tangible? Do you have actions that you take or even resources that you use that help you in your teaching and help you and uh, your students as well, right? And so I think it might be a good idea that if, like, maybe I list off three and you list off three, if that's okay with you. Sure, yeah. Number one, first thing I do, one of the things I love doing, it's straight up on syllabus day. And, you know, syllabus day is dreaded by some. Some people love it because it's like, ah, this is going to be a 15, 20 minute day. And we're, you know, we're going to be going over what grades are and like what points are. And that's really what most teachers and students 
quote unquote care about, right? It really freaks them out if you don't have a point system on syllabus day because they're like, then why did I show up? Uh, but for me, syllabus day is an opportunity to already start building a community of respect to kind of establish this idea that learning, how I like to think of it, and one of my favorite quotes from an advisor I had as an undergrad was you can imagine a square that you're standing and there's a square around you and that's your comfort zone. And learning does not take place there. It takes place when you take a small step outside of that zone and you're okay with it and you peek outside of your area, right? So learning takes place just outside of that comfort zone. And there's so many students who have been used to being lectured at, who've been used to getting talked down to, that they don't really have discussions or get to feel the need to speak up for the most part, right? There are some, some sort of very comfortable, maybe too comfortable speaking. But I try to challenge my students of like as an expectation for yourself, like speak up more and challenge more. And I think something that I try to turn on its head is syllabus day is usually about teachers pushing and brandishing expectations onto the students. I basically tell them like, I have one expectation of y'all and that's respect, R-E-S-P-E-C-T, you know, find out what that means. And truly that is my goal and a rule, right? Like no yelling, no screaming, no name calling, or I reserve the right to throw them out. I used to be a lot more serious about that rule. My voice would go like eight octaves deeper <laughs> when I would say it. And so they're like, okay, then what about all the other rules, right? The cell phone rule, the attendance rule, all these other rules. And I pause and I say, okay, you're setting the rules. You're setting the rules for the classroom. You're setting the rules for your classmates. You're setting the rules for me. And this tends to freak some students out because they're not normally used to the ones setting the rules. And what I do is I create this Google Doc sheet after the class, and maybe even during the class, I'll type it in there or I'll use the whiteboard and I have different sections of expectations of you and expectations of me. And basically, I negotiate expectations of them of what is reasonable. Now, you might be like, oh, God, the students are going to go haywire with this, right? They're going to be like, cell phones are okay. Drugs are okay. Just doing <laughs> cocaine in the background. And I'm just like... And you'll be very surprised of just how reasonable they are and almost how normal the rules are. Like they basically set the rules that almost any teacher would expect, but there's a different vibe from coming from it. Like there's more of a buy-in. Yeah. And when I say, what's a good teacher of your experience and what's a bad teacher and what do you expect of me? Their expectations are me are like, can you please respond to our emails from 48 hours? That seems like a very reasonable thing to do. Yeah. But you're that like, I going to do that anyway. <laughs> Inter well, internally, yeah. You don't tell them that. Listen, you Hopefully don't tell them how the sausage is made. <laughs> they listen. They're like, "Wow, he he gave us false autonomy." I'm like, "No, no, no." Hey, the rules are the rules, and they're typically reasonable. Um, and I think that helps because I so I have usually three or four students who come afterwards. Who before I did this, I don't think I really had any students really come after syllabus day just to like thank me for treating them like a human being. And that I don't know how to react because that's almost heartbreaking in a way, right? Like this isn't like me be like, oh, look how great I am. But the simple fact that you just ask them, what do they think? And like, what rules do you want to say? And how do you want to be part of this community? And they're just like, thank you. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm like, I didn't do much. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. but I think that's kind of the key takeaway. You don't have to do much to improve your skills. Like it just it's little thoughtful things, little intentional things I think helps as your teacher. So my very long first one, but like negotiating and having students set rules for the classroom. Yeah, that's a very good tip. Um, 
guess the first one I'll share is more about resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe we can even like link some of these on podcast episodes or whatever. What, yeah, what do podcasters do? I, we'll we'll I link don't know. Can we like link something? <laughs> maybe we'll tweet it later. Um, but essentially what I like to do for my classes is um, only use free open access materials. So the very first time I taught a class, I used like a, a textbook and I think it, it was like $175 or something for the students. Mm-hmm. And, you know, college for many people is a financial burden, right? Like it's hard on a lot of students and, you know, student debt is obviously a huge issue in our country. And if I can do like one small thing to like alleviate the financial burden of college, then I want to do that. And there are just so many wonderful free resources out there, especially for psychology. So like in my intro to psych class and in my social psychology classes, I use a website called Nova. And it has all of these different learning modules that have been written by huge names in the field, right? Experts. Mm-hmm. Um, and not for the audience, but just for me, if you were to spell it, is that Noba with a B or Noba with a B? Noba, N-O-B-A. Yeah, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, but I've also found some really great like free textbooks to use in my statistics courses as well. So if you're like willing to like, look into things, um, then there are all sorts of wonderful materials out there online. And I always tell my students they want a class, like I'm not going to make you pay for a book when there is so much information on the internet that's good information, you know, that we can use for free. Mm, amen. I, I love that. Because even <laughs> in like teaching out of the semester, mm-hmm. like there are societies out there that like provide you like 20 PowerPoints on 20, like there are resources out there for anyone to be like, if this is your first time teaching or if you're trying to learn on your own as a student, they're out there and they're free. And I'm like, Oh, definitely. So like Nova that I was talking about. So they have like the learning modules for students, but then they also have for instructors, PowerPoints that you can use. They have exam like test banks full of questions that you can use. It's absolutely wonderful. Um, And I've utilized those resources for a, a long time now. All right. So number two. I would say another way to make the classroom personal and to kind of like create a more of a community of respect. And I mentioned it kind of briefly earlier on, but this idea of storytelling, every single person in that classroom, yourself included, has a story to tell. And especially with psychology, especially with psychology, the study of human behavior, emotion, cognition, motivation, that's intrinsically what it means to be human. To say that you don't have a story on memories or to that you didn't experience an emotional time in your life or even mental health, like those exist and can be relevant to everyone. And so this idea of even if you're starting out a lecture or ending the lecture, as when I was an undergrad, the only thought I could have so many classes I was so bored of is why am I learning this? What is the point? Right? What is the point of me taking this class besides some mandatory for credits? And for me, some of the best teachers I've had and that I've tried to is it emulate to try to like copy and like follow up on well, is this idea of if you can start every lecture of like a personal story, a hook and say like, this is why we're talking about motivation, right? 
Have you ever heard about some students getting paid for grades versus some students not? Or have you ever wanted to know how to train your dog? Or if you're in developmental site, how, what's the best way to parent? What is positive parenting? Have you had good experience and bad experiences both as a child or sometimes, and this is true, like we have non-traditional students. Sometimes we have parents in the classroom. Yeah. If you can get them to start telling those stories and they're like, oh, that's why people care about this topic. Oh, let me let me listen a little bit more deeply instead of like this kind of blind reading of the PowerPoint slides. Like I would say less text is more and giving the opportunity and spotlight for students to share their own stories. And maybe that's touching upon like the third activity I'll do. So I'll stop now. But this idea of like, to me, life stories are powerful and they evoke a lot of things. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that my my second tip is related to that as well. So I think my second tip is to not be afraid to share with students things about your own identity. So like I've had wonderful conversations with my students after sharing things like I'm a first generation college student or I'm queer. And especially like teaching here in the South, like that has generated some really deep and meaningful conversations where I've been able to connect with students who also share that identity status, right? Or like in my social psych class, you know, recognizing that I'm white and that I have a lot of privilege and talking about those sorts of things. Um, I think that students like connect to that kind of vulnerability, right? And it goes back to what you were talking about at the very beginning about the importance of humanizing teachers, right? Mm -hmm. Like we are like human beings with our own, you know, thoughts and emotions and struggles and joys and things like that. And, you know, making yourself seem just real to your students, I think is a very powerful teaching tool. I'm probably going to make this one a two-parter um, because you made me think of something. Was First, I wanted to talk about my original number three. And that was going to be a very classical activity that I learned in my own TOP teaching of psych class. Um, very traditional, but very effective of think, pair, share, where you pose a question to the class, maybe on a PowerPoint out loud. And there's different variations of it. But usually the three steps are you give them a few minutes to write down their own thoughts alone on a piece of paper. So that's the thinking part. You then pair them with one or two other students and they have like many group discussions which typically gets like introverts willing to share. And then the think pair, the share part, the third part is you open up to the larger classroom where like maybe the more extroverted people can share general things and talks about that. And I think that's effective when you pair it with storytelling, not for like students to tell each other stories, but students feel more empowered to tell their own story um, while also catering to students who are more quieter, introverted, who maybe don't feel comfortable in the larger classroom and the smaller classroom. The part two to that point that you made me think of, I think is kind of our overall theme or my overall message of like being comfortable with uncertainty and with what you don't know and being okay to admit that to students. So you made me think of when I taught a psychology of gender course, right? So uh, both you and I, part of the LGBT community, like when it comes to talking about like sexuality and sexual orientation, that's something I can make more relevant, more personal um, and make arguably more interesting for me, even though I think it's an inherently interesting topic. But as soon as I started going stuff to, I wasn't as comfortable with. So psychology of gender, 
you're going to be talking about sex discrimination. You're going to be talking about the history of feminism and feminist rights. Like those are not my subject matter experts. And when you're in a field like psychology, where like 80% to 90% of your class are females, and you're the cis male who's telling them of how yeah. how women are. Like I was very upfront with them. I'm like, if you disagree with anything I'm saying, and you know, I try to put it in tentative language, and like, hey, this is what we kind of believe is going on. Do you agree or disagree? I think a good piece of advice is let your students challenge the material. Don't yeah. share your material as this is, you know, truth as God knows it. But be hum- be a little bit humble about it and just be like, here is the consensus, right? Even if it's like a more thing that you're more expert on, here's the consensus. This, there seems to be strong evidence. Here's the evidence. But if you're skeptical, can you tell me why you're skeptical? Can you tell me a little bit about that? Let other students hear it because there's probably more than one student who's skeptical of what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And I think instead of just trying to shut them down or try to make them feel like lesser than like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. I think that happens too frequently already where we try to shut down the youth, shutting down the youth. (laughs) Don't shut them down, corrupt them. (laughs) Uh, Give them a voice to speak. Right. And, and to me, at least I'll end on this. It's there's so many times for me personally, when I don't have a full thought, but I know when I start speaking out loud and sharing it is when I fully develop that thought and recognize maybe illogical fallacies in my own reasoning. And I see that when students are like, they have this strong opinion. And then as they're sharing it, they're like, you know, they've stopped mid It's like, oh, never mind. Uh, I was wrong. And I'm like, okay, cool. Like, it's when you build a community where it's okay to be wrong, oh, yes. it's beautiful. Yes. So that, that's so my beautiful. extended third one. All right, Cassie, <laughs> yeah. what's your final tip? All right, my final tip is for like a fun thing that I do with my students. Um, and that is to create a collaborative Spotify playlist. Oh, Lord, yeah. And I've been doing this for a, a while, um, but I think that the students have real, have fun with it um, and they actually add songs to the playlist. And so like sometimes it will be playing like during an activity in class or, you know, like before class starts or like I encourage them to like listen to it like at home, you know, as they're like working on things. Um, but it. I don't know. It's just like a fun thing that I do with them. Um, can you explain a little bit about it? So I know what you're talking about. But like, can you like walk me through like what this or walk someone who's never heard of this is when you say collaborative Spotify? Oh, okay. What, what sure. is that? Like, right. So I, I make a, a playlist on Spotify where students are able to add songs to the playlist as well. So like throughout the semester, like students have the opportunity to like put some songs on there. I put songs on there throughout the semester. And then like at the end of the semester, I'm like, this is our playlist that you can, you know, like and follow and like have like, we made this together. (laughs) Look at all these bops. Uh, Okay. Maybe sometimes I feel like the old man. I'll let you boppers keep on bopping. <laughs> I would say, is there a, so like when I hear that, right. And I, I don't do this, right. So this is uniquely you. Yeah. Is there ever a concern for students like putting inappropriate songs or like songs that, you know, you didn't screen or kind of got through and are like, does that ever become an issue? Or is that something people should worry about? Or how do you handle that? Type of situation? Oh, I do not care. I mean, <laughs> my- fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't matter to me. I'm like, this is all, it's art. Who am I to say it's inappropriate? Um, Hippie Cassie confirmed. 
yeah, like it's fine with me. This is a public university. <laughs> and I think on that note, <laughs> we should go. <laughs> all right, then, folks. Thank you for listening to our first official episode. Yeah, thank and, you for being uh, here. Hello, hello again. We just want to thank you one more time for listening to Two Random Weirdos. If you want to listen to us ramble some more, we'll be posting episodes hopefully bi-weekly on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Fingers crossed. If you want to get in touch with us, we can be found on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at CorruptYouthPod. Or feel free to email us at CorruptingTheYouthPod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and helping us spread the corruption. Bye. Bye.